are returning uh, to 2 Thessalonians, and it's not often, it's not common. In fact, I don't know that I've ever encountered this, but it's, it's, it's not every day, I, I suppose. You, you encounter a text of Scripture, a passage of Scripture where commentators, theologians describe it as weird, weird. Yet here we are. One commentator writes of our passage today, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, this section dealing with the indications which may be expected to herald the end of the world provides us with the weirdest piece of writing in all the epistles and one that has never yet been satisfactorily explained. And so I got news for you. I'm not going to explain it any better than you've heard it before probably today. But these reminders ought to bring us comfort and encourage us to not be shaken by the things that come our way. Our series, Unshaken, Unshaken, hearts directed toward the love of God. We know what's going on here. Uh, Paul has written to the Thessalonians and uh, just gushing with his love for them and desire to see them face to face again. It seems as though he's gotten reports that some of his teachings were, were being um, uh, countered by different teachings. And so he writes this second letter to help set the record straight, to sort of explain certain things in greater detail so that this people would be firm, steadfast, that they would be unshaken. Now, we recognize also that as Paul writes here, he's reminding them of things that he has taught them before when he was face to face. Unfortunately, some of these particulars are things that we don't have recorded for us. And so it may be part of the reason why some of these verses are just difficult verses to interpret properly. But God has, in his word, given us what we need so don't think that I, if we just knew what Paul said when he was with the Thessalonians, then we would know what we need to know. No, I will uh, defend to my death that what we have written here is exactly what God intended for us to have. And when it challenges you, let it be a reminder you're fully dependent on God to understand and apply his word properly. I want to read all these verses uh, 1 to 12, and I, I'm, we're doing this like we did the previous couple of weeks. We're breaking the sermon into two parts, uh, two major headings. Okay, I'll explain those in a moment. But let's read first, or excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 1, all the way through verse 12. And as a reminder, uh, you'll know that I'm reading, and it's on the screen in the ESV, the English Standard Version. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, gathered together to him, excuse me, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. 
And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who, who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Pray with me once more. Father, we most certainly need your help to understand your word. And Father, we do recognize that in your sufficient word is uh, everything we need. And Father, the, the thought that we need something else we know is from the enemy. So Father, we pray that as you are willing, enlighten our hearts and minds. Ultimately, not so we, we may know details, but so that we may know Jesus. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to call this uh, next couple of weeks the mystery of lawlessness. The mystery of lawlessness. So, you understand the context as he mentions it in this writing here in chapter 2. These people in Thessalonica are being shaken by errant teachings about the end times. The errant teaching that Paul is addressing here is not just a first century problem. It's not just that uh, back then they heard rumors that, that it all sort of, uh, um, it, it's all happening now. It's, it, the day of the Lord, in fact, has come. That's what they're teaching in these days, countering Paul's teaching. So he addresses this issue. But it's not just a first century problem. I want to give you some help here at, at some risk. I want to explain a few different views on uh, this passage particularly and, and end times in general. And I think it will help us place kind of not only where we are, um, and that is individually, because I guarantee you there's probably somebody who doesn't hold the same view as you in this room. But I want to give you some explanation. First off, as it relates to that view that the day of the Lord has already come. There is a view that uh, is prominent now that holds this. It's called preterism. Preterism. It just means past. Okay? There's a couple of different kinds of uh, preterism. But basically what this, this view holds is that Christ came spiritually in 70 AD. And he will come spiritually again. That would be a full preterist view here. In order to be consistent, this position denies a future bodily resurrection and it denies a future 
bodily return of Christ, okay, as you just heard me say. So uh, we have to reject a full preterist view on a basis that we believe fully, as the angel said to the disciples when Jesus ascended, hey, the same way he went, you're going to see him coming again, Acts 1.11. Now, we also embrace a future bodily resurrection. And we learn this from 1 Thessalonians 4. We learn the dead in Christ will rise. Now, there's a, that's the full preterist view. We must reject that. There's a partial preterism that retains core doctrines of the Christian faith that uh, some may embrace. It's not very popular in our day. What it holds is that many prophecies of Scripture were fulfilled in 70 A.D., but Christ's return and the bodily resurrection are still future events, along with the final judgment. So preterism, that gives you one view right there. Um, now, the next view I'll discuss is the amillennial view. Now, I'm not talking about the millennium today because the passage doesn't, but I'm helping you understand some uh, handles that you can sort of put this text in the categories uh, properly, okay? So we're not talking about matters concerning the millennial reign of Christ, whether that's literal or not, uh, as you know from this name here, amillennialism. We're not going to talk about the millennium. I'll only mention it now to distinguish these views. So some people hold that the rapture of the church or the ingathering of believers happens when Christ is revealed in his second coming. Now, furthermore, in this view, the time of tribulation is now, and any reference to the great tribulation would simply be consistent with this uh, uh, unprecedented apostasy that Paul writes about here, or uh, what he seems to write about here. According to this view, things will get much, much worse before the end comes, and there's not a definitive time frame for a special type of uh, tribulation. So this position, as best as I'm trying to summarize it right here, is amillennialism. Preterism, amillennialism, Say that five times fast. And then the third view, which is probably more common among us, is premillennialism. Premillennialism. This view takes that a literal millennial reign of Christ is coming and still future. And proponents of this view typically teach that the Great Tribulation is a definite seven year long period that begins with three and a half years of peace and then follows with three and a half years of uh, turmoil, of tribulation, of chaos. Now, within this group, there is uh, some debate as to when the rapture of the church actually occurs. Uh, it's either pre-tribulation rapture, mid-tribulation rapture, or post-tribulation rapture. So they believe that either... The rapture of the church happens at the beginning of that seven years, in the middle of the seven years, or at the end of the seven years. Now, this view, in general, premillennialism, is very desirable because it does answer a lot of questions. It attempts to answer really the most common questions and can be systematized very easily 
Uh, if you want to know some history here, this view, premillennialism, was popularized by uh, dispensational theology. Some of you that did our midweek study just cringed a little bit, but uh, you know uh, the root of this. Uh, it was popularized by dispensationalism, but especially, this view became especially prominent uh, after the world wars, and you could understand why. Uh, there's another view that really is not common at all um, these days, and it is a, a post-millennial view. Another time, another day, okay? So you get the idea here. There are still people who believe that Christ has already come. That's my main point here. But then as it relates to the interpretation of this text, our millennial people are going to tend to interpret things a certain way, and pre-millennial people are going to tend to interpret things a certain way. So as we walk through this, we need to recognize those, those distinctions are important because um, when, we, when we try to interpret, we have a tendency to put our interpretive grid on the text. So we take our view and we say, okay, how I'm going to interpret this is only going to support what I already believe. That's a dangerous place to be, but we all do it. We all do it to some degree. None of us comes to Scripture with a completely blank slate. So one way that this may work out, some people who are pre-tribulation, pre-millennial folks, they're looking at texts like this and maybe scratching their heads because they wonder, hey, why, why wouldn't Paul just say, hey, don't worry, worry about these things because you're going to be raptured. If, in fact, the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness, that's uh, what I believe he's telling us here, if, in fact, this comes after the rapture of the church, then why is he, why is he going into all this? Why not just say, hey, you're going to be gone by this time? And it leads to some people interpreting certain things to support that, that they're already gone. Now, some odd millennial folks may have some fear about drawing definitive conclusions regarding end-time events and then reconciling the rapture text from 1 Thessalonians 4, which seems to be a totally different event. So you got that event, and then you got what he's talking about here. How are these, the amillennial person is trying to put them together, but almost has a hard time doing so? So now you understand why there are so many difficulties in this text. And in some sense, I've been sort of dreading preaching this all week. I want to be careful that we're not trying to force a particular view on the text as best we can. And let's just sort of study it for what it is and what purposes we have it. So a theme... Finally, you're like, finally, he's going to tell us what the text says. Your theme this morning, Christ's return will conclude decisive victory over God's opponents amid undeniably apocalyptic events. Christ's return will conclude decisive victory over God's opponents amid undeniably apocalyptic events. Now, my wording is strategic here. Conclude. 
decisive victory. Because where is the victory won? At the cross. At the cross. So at this point, all the enemies of God are already defeated. But the fullness of that defeat is not yet manifest. So his return will conclude all of that. It will manifest every measure of defeat that all of God's opponents really received at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, he mentions here concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. So, I want to give you this week and next week two matters concerning Christ's coming. So, let's preview those real quick. First off, God's people develop appropriate anticipation. That's what we're covering this week. And then secondly, next week, God's enemies deceive under divine direction. God's enemies deceive under divine direction. So first off, God's people develop appropriate anticipation. And I want to say on his words here, the, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. Be reminded that the day of the Lord, as the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, is an event that includes the blessed hopes of God's people, God's covenant people, as well as the wrath for the nations, like Zephaniah talked about. We look toward the rest for the people of God at the consummation of the kingdom, as well as the full execution of judgment, which includes what's known as the great white throne judgment. All of this are part of the day, if you will. Now, I'll show my cards a little bit and tell you that I take a fairly narrow view of the day of the Lord just to include those things. There are some who, uh, in, a, uh, in, in trying to interpret everything as the day of the Lord, will take everything from the pre-tribulation rapture of the church all the way through the 1,000-year uh, literal millennium. They'll include all of that into the day of the Lord. I don't tend to do that. I'm looking mostly at the second coming of Christ when he comes to judge. That's what he's talking about in chapter 1. So that's where I take this. Furthermore, in this passage, Paul says in verse 3, he says, that day, referring to the day of the Lord, that day will not come until these things happen. That would be why I sort of narrow it there. So let's walk through this. God's people develop appropriate anticipation concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him we ask you brothers Paul touches on some of the warmth here in the letter it's kind of a sober letter but we do know that this is a common expression for Paul we ask you brothers and he unpacks that a little more in the next chapter that familial relationship and this we ask you, brothers, amounts to three requests from the text. Three requests from the text. First off, he says, uh, we ask you not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So the first request is remain unshaken. 
shaken. Remain unshaken. You may be aware that in uh, 1923, there was a massive earthquake in Tokyo. Massive earthquake. 140,000 people died in this earthquake in Tokyo. And yet, if you go to Tokyo today, you're going to see huge buildings. Tall, towering buildings. And it makes you wonder, like, why would they want to rebuild like that after such a massive, destructive event? Well, you may also know that building construction has come a long way since 1923. Nowadays, architects and engineers are able to build buildings so that, as one writer said, uh, the, the buildings actually sort of dance when the earthquake happens. They're designed to move when the earthquake happens. So when the ground shakes, they actually absorb the shaking in the way that they are structured. And you see what Paul is telling these people right here. You got to live in such a way that when something shakes, you got to be able to absorb that. You've got to be able to withstand this. Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarm. That's like being tossed from your mind. Quickly, he says, that's like uh, hastily or rashly. You know that day, you're having just a wonderful day and all the things are going great. And it's like, you're just in love with Jesus and you're loving people and you're smiling. If you know me, I smile very little. But I am happy, I promise. I just got that kind of face, all right? Um, You know that day, everything is solid, and then somebody gives you a word, and it flips your mind over. It takes you all off track. You know, in those moments when that person says that thing, and all of a sudden, your emotions have taken control of you. He says, look, when words like this come upon you, you can't respond that way. You've got to absorb that quake. You've got to absorb that. Don't be swayed by emotional reactions. Rather, absorb what's being told to you. Let the mind do its part in processing information, as one writer says, Bame says, to enable the power of judgment at the command of sober understanding. You get that word, and you have to take a step back, don't you? Let me remember what is true. Let me remember what is right. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Now, their teachings that were being Uh, that were challenging Paul's teachings were coming upon them in a few different ways, it seems. He says, if these things come to you by a spirit, and this might refer to a legitimate prophetic utterance through the exercise of a spiritual gift. But what's happened is it's been twisted. So it may be a legitimate prophetic word that somebody has twisted. I've said that twice. Y'all know how... Sound bites are real popular these days. If we can get the person we don't like 
saying this sentence and just rip it from its context, we can make them look like a total fool. Imagine what the, the opponents of Paul, what the, what the preachers of, of these false teachings, imagine what their promo material was like. Hey, you know, Paul said this. Is that really what he taught? That happens a lot in our day. So it might be referencing this prophetic utterance, but it may be an utterance that was delivered under the guise of the Holy Spirit, but actually has demonic origin. You know, John will write to his audience, 1 John 4 and 1. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. You know, some Christians have such little discernment that anything that sounds good, anything that sounds good and sounds spiritual, they welcome it in with no testing. In fact, I sat with a brother on Friday morning and I told him, he was telling me about this new book and he's sort of, you know, wary of it. And I was like, yeah, anything that's brand new and really popular, I just assume there's something wrong with it. That's a safe place to start. you got to test that. Don't just put it on your bookshelf. Don't just put it in your mind. Don't listen to that until you know that it is consistent with God's word. Test the spirits. So there's a spirit, he says, also a spoken word, likely a report of teaching. Have you heard the report of the teaching on the day of the Lord, how it's actually already arrived? It's what they may have been hearing, the spirit, the spoken word. And then he mentions a sham letter. It appears that a letter was circulating claiming apostolic authority, but Paul denies having written such a letter right here. Claiming to be from, seeming to be from us. That letter is not from us. Don't listen to that. Remain unshaken. Remain unshaken shaken. All three of these methods were at work to derail the Thessalonian believers and convince them that the day of the Lord had already arrived. So the correction needed here serves to build up these believers and to temper their expectations. I refer to you, you to our main point today. God's people develop appropriate anticipation. Develop appropriate anticipation. It leads to a second request. So we have remain unshaken. And a second request here, resist deception. Resist deception. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So our anticipation, I want to remind you, is not blind. So you start to see the rub between these two letters. And in fact, a lot of theologians, a lot of commentators, they have issues with these letters and they disagree vehemently. But you start to see the issue here. So if we're interpreting this, is the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night? 1 Thessalonians 4. Or are we looking for certain signs? 
Are we awaiting a, a rapture or are we looking for the Antichrist? And so some would read these things and say, well, Paul is contradicting himself, but that's not, that's not what's happening here. We have an expectation that is informed. And uh, Hebert, you know, Hebert, he says, aside from the differences in the writing purposes, suddenness and signs can absolutely occur side by side. Suddenness and signs can operate side by side. You know, there are some signs that your transmission is failing in your car. Slipping, it shifts, makes noises. If you're hearing these things, you probably need to get it checked out. And you can be listening and feeling for those signs that your transmission may go out at some point, but you don't know when your transmission is going out. Paul predicts here two key events. And I'll have you recognize that Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, echoes these, or rather, uh, Paul's echoing these truths from that. We need awareness of these events. Awareness of these things will cause us to be prepared to be unshaken. It will guard us from becoming prey to deceptive teaching. And if we're honest, folks, look, there's always a new fad. Even in just my lifetime, I can think of many, many end times, you know, fantastic ideas in my lifetime. There's always a new fad, there's always a new teaching, there's always a new method ready to deceive you, and it's not just regarding the end times. And the only way to ensure you're not taken by that chatter is to immerse yourself in the Word of God, increasingly aware of what God has spoken concerning all matters. And so this matter, he says, here, there's two events you need to know about. They're not necessarily sequential. First off, apostasy will rise. Apostasy will rise. These are not up there um, on the screen, so follow me well if you're taking these notes. Apostasy will rise. You notice there, he says, uh, the day won't come until, unless, excuse me, unless the rebellion comes first. The rebellion comes first. That word rebellion is revolt, defection. Uh, some uh, uh, translations interpret the word departure. And in doing so, it leads some to say that this is actually referring to the rapture. I don't think that's the case. Uh, I don't think that this is a reference to the rapture. I think this is talking about what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. People will fall away and they will begin to hate one another. Deeply hate one another. So, we know, we understand apostasy. Apostasy is turning on the faith that someone once claimed. Someone once claimed. Now, interpreters uh, take this to restrict, uh, to restrict this only to Jews who turn to worship the Antichrist in the Great Tribulation. I, I don't take it that way. 
I'll take this as an event within Christianity. I'll take this as an event of professing believers who abandon their supposed faith in Christ. And be mindful of the fact that these kinds of things are already at work. You all know somebody who has abandoned the faith. The the willingness to give up on once they want, what they once proclaimed, what they, what they said they possessed, turned out to simply be a false profession. So every time someone, a professing believer, turns from the faith, let it be a reminder to you that that's only the seed form of a mass defection still to take place. You got Paul, you got James, you got Peter, you got Jude. All of these guys predict that this will happen. And so you see how the spirit of apostasy is already at work, but it will rise. Apostasy will rise. Secondly, the second event, Antichrist will be revealed. Antichrist will be revealed. He continues. And the man of lawlessness, or man of sin, if your version says that, is revealed. The son of destruction. So this other event, not necessarily sequential, again, this figure, this man of lawlessness, will have been alive for some time. But there will be a definite time of disclosure of his true identity as the Antichrist. Now, you may hear teaching that says that this is just sort of a spirit, it's sort of a, a movement, that it's not a particular person. I think there's, there's no way to get around Paul speaking of a particular person here. Now, this is not Satan, but it is a leader through whom Satan's plans manifest. He is described here, but not named. He is the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. The difference is a difference of manuscript throughout history. Meaning the same thing. Man of sin, man of lawlessness. He'll be disclosed as rejecting God's law. And just as the spirit of apostasy is already at work, so is the spirit of lawlessness. And we see this, people that abuse God's grace. Let me sin more so that grace may abound. That's an abuse of grace. It may very well be that that lawless teaching that we sort of hear murmurings about here and there that may be how the antichrist is revealed and why paul would call him the man of lawlessness he's also described here as the son of destruction which would simply include everything opposite of salvation complete loss eternal loss torment and misery so paul informs them some actions that he will take which are all connected. So follow me here. I'm, I'm going off, off, off the screen here. Take your notes carefully. He exalts himself absolutely. He exalts himself absolutely. It's reminiscent of, of the game we played as kids, King of the Mountain. He's going to portray himself as having deposed and defeated all other gods, including the one true God. Now, we read this, and we're like, it, it, it seems impossible that anybody would, would follow and submit to such an obvious fraud. Yet, doesn't it seem impossible that someone who seemed so strong in the faith would walk away from it? Somebody does, and we're like, what just happened? I thought I, I knew that person. 
It's like they're totally different. We can't fathom that happening yet. He will come. Many will be deceived. This is not going to be a minor event, but a persuasive and worldwide deception. The likes of which would, as Jesus says, lead astray the elect if it were possible. He exalts himself absolutely. He, secondly, as we see here, assumes temple authority. Now some, maybe some of you, would say that this is a physical temple which will be rebuilt in Jerusalem wherein the sacrificial system is reinstituted. Beal, G.K. Beal, however, says that this is the church. Now, I tend to lean that way personally, that this is the church, simply because of Paul's usage of the word temple. He only ever uses the word temple to describe Christ or the church. Furthermore, through the church, the Antichrist would attain worldwide power. So I tend to agree with this here. And especially seeing the widespread weakness and worldliness of the church, as well as the global presence of the church, I think that it gives the Antichrist the grounds, the means by which he needs to accomplish this satanic purpose. So he assumes temple authority, one way or another, however you interpret that. He assumes temple authority. He will have great authority over people. Thirdly, it says he ascribes godhood to himself. He claims to be God. Ascribes godhood to himself. Self-deification. So throughout, I hope you notice, Paul has been making connections between Jesus and the Antichrist. He has his own coming. He has his own revelation, the exact words that are used to describe Jesus. He has his own exclusive salvation. I am God and there is no other. He has his own miracles, as we'll see. He even has his own gospel, which Paul says is a lie, verse 11. Hebert writes of this, the Antichrist is Satan's best parody of the true Messiah. While imitating Christ, he will be the complete opposite of him. And you know something inside of me chuckles a little bit and cries at the same time. When I hear many Christians speak of the Antichrist, when they speak of him, it's, it's usually, maybe most often, is an obvious character by whom we most assuredly would never be duped. Some thought Nero was the Antichrist. Some thought that Pope, the Pope was the Antichrist. The reform, some of the reformers did. And many in our day want to make him their most hated political leader. But folks, it's not that simple. It is not that simple. And if you do these kinds of things, I'm telling you, you're giving yourself way too much credit. 
Hear me when I say this. Hear me when I say this. Were it not for God's keeping grace, you would follow this man. Let that sink in. If the thought of the Antichrist and this great deception, if that does not make you a little concerned, if that does not produce the kind of like tears and really worship for the awesome God that we serve, the gracious God, then something is wrong. We must not talk lightly about the Antichrist. He concludes here, and I'm concluding, we are a little late. A third request, briefly, remember sound teaching. Remember sound teaching. He says in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Commentators take this as a mild rebuke. Hey, like, don't go that way. What did I tell you? What did I teach you? Two thoughts on this. This is part of Christian doctrine. It is part of Christian doctrine. Paul gives a regular place in his teaching to the matters of the end. It wasn't reserved for only the mature or the advanced in faith. It is a part of Christian doctrine. But it's kind of like kids at the dinner table that only want dessert. I just want the dessert. I don't want all the other stuff. I want the dessert. That really tickles me. That really makes me happy, whatever it may be. It's like that kid because the dessert is part of the meal. Eschatology, end times, doctrines, they're part of Christian doctrine. But we got to remember a second thought. They're only part of Christian doctrine. They're only part of Christian doctrine. So friends, folks, I hate to break it to you, maybe, hopefully not for the first time, but you will never figure out the sequence of events in the end. You will not properly identify the Antichrist before he's revealed as such. The, the beast, the delusion, the mark, take your number, any number of things, especially the date of Christ's return, like so many fools try to do. If you go down that rabbit hole, you may find your faith shipwrecked, your relationships strained, and your soul in jeopardy. And you've watched others do it, haven't you? They forget about all the things that God has written to us to learn and know and abide by. And they have chosen this doctrine to be their hobby horse. You don't even want to be around them anymore, do you? You can't figure these things out in all their details. But what you can do this morning 
what you can do this morning is remember the good doctrine that was once for all delivered to the saints. The one way of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus the Christ, crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended, who will come again to wipe out the Antichrist, as Paul says right here, with the breath of his mouth. Very God of very God, our Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life so that you would not be shaken or deceived, but that you would know his gospel, hold fast to his gospel, and thus save your souls. God's people develop appropriate anticipation. Let us be those people. Let us be those people. Now, my confession is, and I've heard, I've, I've, I know many of you have heard me say this in smaller group settings. I have, in many ways, neglected to study and understand my, as best I can, my interpret, interpretations on end times doctrine, eschatology. I have erred on that side. That's my confession. I, I didn't want to go down that, that road. Um, that's not good. It also happens on the other side, as I've just said. You go too far down that road. You invest too much time, too much energy, and you neglect the things that God has revealed, his will for your life. I know that somewhere in the middle, we can follow Jesus. We can give attention to all of what he has prescribed for us. So let's, let's, let's come to that, okay? Maybe in response today, there's a measure of that confession, like I confess. Maybe today you don't know Jesus. And what we have just described here is absolutely terrifying to you. Would you this day repent of your sin, believe on him? By his grace, he will save you through faith. That salvation is yours. Otherwise, there's coming a day when you will believe the lie. And you will never return from it. Fall on him in faith while you can, people. Let's respond to God's word. Let's pray and we'll sing together. Father, we rejoice in your word. It's difficulties, we rejoice in those too. Father, I pray that as we investigate your word, as we uncover its truths,